Let's bow together. And Father, that is our prayer, uh, more about Jesus. Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, that we would uh, glorify you as Christ manifests his life in us. And Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to look and to be reminded of uh, the wonderful, incredible reality that you sent your Son to die for our sins. And I pray as we look into your word that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would convict those who don't know you, and you would cause them to see their need for a Savior, and that they would turn to Christ and be saved. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning. We commit it to you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, why do we celebrate Christmas? For many uh, in this country, we understand uh, that it's about Christ. We live in a Western culture. Uh, I, I would say much of those, it's, it's changing now, it's becoming more pagan, but many of those in our country would say, well, it's about Christ. It's about the birth of Christ. But often that is as far as it goes. That's as far as it goes. It's about a babe in a manger. But uh, we understand from the Word of God, and as we'll see today, that it is much more than just a babe in the manger, that God came and took on human flesh and became a man, and he lived the perfect life, and he died for our sins, that it was God's plan to do what was right for his son to trailblaze the way for us, to bring about our salvation, that we would be saved through what Christ does for us. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10, and we're going to answer the question, really, why Christmas? Again, many people, uh, it's a time to shop, it's a time to get gifts, it's a time to have food and fellowship, and, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but so often the bottom line truth of Christmas gets sidelined, gets put down, and we get caught up in the busyness of of the season and the stuff that we got to do rather than focusing on Christ. I think about Mary and Martha. I think about Martha who was so busy with all their preparations and Mary chose the right thing. She chose the good thing. She chose to sit at the Lord's feet and to learn from him. And so I think hopefully we'll see today from this passage and have a re rejuvenated desire to sit at the Lord's feet to focus on him this Christmas season. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to see that this book of Hebrews, the author is unknown, but we do know it is written to exclusively to Jews, and they are being persecuted. And although we don't know the exact location of where they are, we know that they had been evangelized, chapter 2 in the beginning, by the apostles and prophets sometime after Christ's ascension. And we know that this book was written sometime after Christ ascended, 33 AD, and sometime before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, Hebrews was not written to prove that Christianity was superior to Judaism. It was written to prove that Christ and his new covenant was superior to the old covenant, which was a type and shadow of what would come. And this word of exhortation, as we see in chapter 13, has a Christological focus. It focuses on Christ with exhortations and warnings throughout to strengthen the author's main point. 
And indeed, the author's main theme is, is revealed in the first three verses, that God has given superior revelation through his Son, which surpasses all previous revelation. Uh, and within this, the Son is the heir of all things, the creator of all things. He perfectly represents the Father in position and in authority and has completed his redemptive work. And so the author then, inspired by the Spirit, bookends his argument with this reality. First of all, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Chapter 12, verse 25, and in chapter 1, he speaks through his son. It's about listening to Jesus and not refusing what God has revealed through him. Now in chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 12, the author proves this main theme of the superiority of Jesus and his new covenant, which replaces that is a, that, that which was a type and shadow of the old covenant. He makes his case in the beginning that Jesus is superior to angels, the messengers of the old covenant. That's chapter 1 uh, through chapter 2, verse 18. That he is also superior to Moses, the apostle of the old covenant, chapter 3 through chapter 4. And then that he is superior to the priestly tabernacle sacrificial system, that system of the old covenant, that he is that which fulfills all that those sacrifices which could not bring salvation uh, pointed to. And then we see in chapter 11, the author reveals the new covenant lifestyle as witnessed by old covenant saints. It is faith and thus endurance. And then we have that certainly in chapter 12, that the result of true faith is endurance, is endurance, and that we should set aside every encumbrance and run the race with endurance that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And now more specifically in chapter 1, coming to our passage, uh, he's made it clear that he previously spoke through the prophets bit by bit in various ways. And in these last days, he has spoken through his son, who is the creator, who holds all things together, who is God, who has accomplished our salvation and has been exalted to the right hand of God. And then within that, he uses seven Old Testament quotes in chapter 1 to prove that Jesus has become much better than angels. He he has uh, inherited a more excellent name than them. Specifically, that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. He's the sovereign declared by the resurrection and demonstrated through his deity that he is the sovereign, the king of kings. And thus, with his deity and lordship established over the angels, it is clear that Jesus is far above the angels. And then beginning in chapter 2, he gives his first warning that the Son is superior to angels and his revelation is superior to the revelation which God brought forth in the old covenant through them. He says that we must earnestly pay attention. We must give heed beyond all measure to what Jesus has to say Because if God would deal with those things in such an exacting way in the Old Covenant, how much more for those who reject so great a salvation through Jesus Christ? And so there we come to our passage, which I believe we're going to see the reason for the incarnation. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5. For he did not subject angels, to, to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things into subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. 
But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing thy praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. So then, why Christmas? Well, first of all, I believe we're going to see it's because, first of all, because of our sin. Because we are not where we should be. Because as we will see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice here, he begins pointing out God's intention for man to clearly reign over the world to come. Verse 5, for he did not subject angels to the world to come concerning that which we're speaking. And our passage begins with this word for, which signifies an explanation. Uh, verse 5 points back to what uh, uh, he had shared concerning God bearing witness of so great a salvation through the apostles, this great salvation in Christ and not the angels or for the angels. Let's take a look at that. Hebrews. Let's go back to Hebrews 1.13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make enemies a foot, thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hey, that's what angels are for, okay? They're, they're, that's what they're for. And he says here, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that's the danger. First of all, you can hear the gospel and not respond and drift away from it. Secondly, we can respond to the gospel and we can still drift away from those truths in our heart. We can get focused on other things. But here we see it speaking to those Jews, I believe, who had heard it but hadn't come to Christ yet. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, speaking about the old covenant, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both with by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. And then he begins on. He says, he's saying in context, angels are just ministering spirits, their servants, their messengers uh, for those who will inherit salvation. Thus the warning, if the word through angels brought forth is unalterable, you better not drift away from so great a salvation. And then we have our passage, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning that which we're speaking. Now, there are different words translated world in Greek. Uh, we have one world, which speak, not one world, but we have one word, world, which is translated from the word cosmos, which speaks of the world in its system, in a sense. And then we have another one, Ionis, which speaks of the physical universe, the reaches of time and space. And then we have another one, oikomene, which speaks of the inhabited earth. And here, as we'll see, the inhabited earth or the earth that will be inhabited. That's the word that's being used here. For God did not place into subjection the angels the world to come or the inhabited earth. He's saying he didn't do that. 
It's interesting, one pastor writes, not only have angels never ruled in the past, nor will they rule in the future, they have been servants and messengers in the past, they will continue to be servants and messengers in the future. And so here, angels will not be in charge. That's what he's saying. Is you Jews know this. They're not going to be in charge. They're not going to be in charge. And now at this point, he reminds the reader that man, not angels, was originally created to rule and reign over the world. Verse 6, but one has testified somewhere, saying, what is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And so here we have a quote of Psalm 8, and we read that earlier, and we'll read it again. We sort of Psalm 8, which points out in light of God's majesty demonstrated in creation, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, what is man? And let's turn there to Psalm 8, and let's read this, because this is what the writer of Hebrews is quoting. Psalm 8. For the choir director on the Gittith, uh, a Psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. There you go. We know the song, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, right? Um, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. Wow. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy enemies, just go out and look, right? When I consider this, I think about it, right? The moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? What is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and thou dost and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, in all the earth. In light of God's majesty revealed in his creation, what is man? We have Job in his affliction responding to Eliphaz in this way too. He says in Job 7, 7, what is man? That thou dost magnify him and thou art concerned about him, that thou dost examine him every morning and try him every moment. The Lord's thoughts are upon us, right? They're too numerous to count, right? Psalm 144, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that thou dost take knowledge of him, of the son of man that thou dost think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are a passing shadow. So the question here is, what is man? And so the answer ultimately is important for our understanding of the gospel and thus salvation. It's important. We must have a biblical understanding of man, his sinless origin and subsequent fall. Now, obviously, Satan is working overtime to skew uh, mankind and, and man's view of mankind, right? But God's word reveals the truth. And if we are willing to humble ourselves and listen, we can understand the truth by the power of his spirit. 
back in our passage, but one has testified, verse 6, somewhere saying, What is man that thou hast remembered him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Now here we must ask the question, who is the son of man he's talking about here in context? Indeed, uh, Psalm 8 has messianic implications in its original context. And it's a comparison between the majesty of God and his creation and man. We see that in his creation and man. And now the term son of man is used to describe Jesus. Certainly we see that in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was described also, used to describe man also. Take Ezekiel. He was called the son of man 93 times. 93 times. And in the Hebrew language, we often see parallelism to emphasize a point. What is man that thou hast remembered? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him. So in the implica- so the implications here, although there's messianic implications in Psalm 8 in its original context, here it is just a case of parallelism. We're going to see it talks about mankind, and then we'll see the Lord Jesus brought in later in comparison, as we'll see. So he says here, uh, What is a man that thou wast remember, or the son of man that thou wast concerned about him? Why would God remember or be concerned about man? Now, this term concerned here is often translated visit. It speaks of looking after the sick, visiting to go help. Uh, We see this in Luke chapter 1. Turn to Luke chapter 1. It's also spoken in this context, as we'll see, of God looking after us in our sin sickness, to visit us, to help us, to take care of us through salvation in Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has, here we are, visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Luke 1.69, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And then in verse 76, a little farther down, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Speaking of John the Baptist, to give the people the knowledge of salvation by way of the forgiveness of of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise on high shall sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace so with this in mind, what is God, what is man, O oh God, that you would remember, that you would come to in context, as we'll see, to save him, to visit him, to help him? What is man? And notice uh, we have the answer in verse 7. Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels, back in Hebrews 2. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. So first of all, we see what is man, O God, that you would visit him or come to help or save him? The answer is, first of all, he's your creation. He's your creation. Thou hast made him. Right? We were created in his image and likeness. In his image and likeness. But notice something. Man was made for a little while lower than angels. And that here, I believe, speaks of the limitation of the physical sphere in which we are in. This physical sphere, this physical realm. Yet this verse has a wonderful truth, if you think about it. Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels. Wow. 
The term little while implies that God's plan was always for man to be more than what he was initially created for. Isn't that great? For a little while. You made him lower than angels. What is man that you would visit him, come to help him, to save him? He's your creation. And then what is man? Uh, uh, he was made, created to rule over, to reign over creation. Uh, notice he says here, Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and has appointed him over the works of thy hands. Verse 8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now man was crowned with glory and honor. And you say, how was that? Well, certainly by virtue of his position having been created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, and he, also that he would be that who rules over the works of God's hands. The work of thy hands. Look at the end of verse 7. And thou hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. He has been appointed over God's handiwork. That's his creation. And notice verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Everything was subjected. Everything was subjected um, to mankind. Everything. He put it all in subjection under his feet. Does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man our own image according to our likeness and let us and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And God created man his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, by the way, male and female, uh, craziness going on these days, right? Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and said to them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what man was created to do. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. So here he's quoting in Hebrews the psalm, and it gives us a picture of what man was before the fall. What man was initially created, even lower than angels, but yet created in glory and majesty to rule over the works of God's hand. That was his original purpose. But unfortunately, we must read on. Look at uh, the end of verse 8. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Here's the reality check. We do not see all things subjected to him. We do not see man reigning properly as God's vice regent over creation. What do we see reigning instead? Sin. We see sin reigning throughout Turn to Romans chapter 5, and I'm just going to read a couple verses in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Just watch TV. We see sin reigning. Just think about your own life. We see sin reigning, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that was through Adam, by the way, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, all men because all sinned. There we go. Look at verse 17, Romans 5. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18. So then, as through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Verse 21. That as sin reigned in death. Sin reigned in death. 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So we have death reigning, not, not man reigning in, in, in God's, uh, in glory and, and honor of, as God's co, uh, co, uh, regent over the creation. We have sin reigning. We have sin reigning. One pastor writes, his crown is rolled in the dust, his honor is tarnished and stained, his sovereignty is strongly disputed among the lower orders of creation. If trees nourish him, it is after strenuous care, they often disappoint. If the earth supplies him with food, it's in tardy response to exhausting toil. If the beasts are to serve him, it's because they have been laboriously trained and tamed. While vast numbers roam the forest glades, setting him in de- at defiance. If he catches fish of the sea or bird of the air, he must Wait long in cunning concealment. So degraded he has become that he has bowed before the objects he was to command. Where is the supremacy of man? I agree with that. Another pastor writes, Whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. And that's really what our passage is saying. But we do not see all things, yet all see all things subjected to to him. Another writes, instead of having mastery, he is mastered. Instead of ruling, he is enslaved. Instead of being characterized by glory, he is characterized by shame. Man seeks his destiny by tyranny and cruelty. There is still something, yet there's still something planted. There's something planted in the nature of man which leads him to want to rule, but yet it's perverted. We see that through sin. So then, we have sin reigning and if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, sin is reigning in your life. You are not what you were meant to be. Sin is reigning in your life, and there are great consequences. And it is because of the fall of mankind. That's what we're going to see. That's why Jesus came, because mankind is in sin. It's because of sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, because of sin, man is not reigning over God's creation properly. Man is not in his proper place. Sin is reigning over man, as we see. Middle of verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Notice that yet. Another encouraging word, isn't it? Yet see. We don't yet see it, implying that it will happen. Now, not with everyone. There are those who will reject Christ, and sin will reign unto death, as we'll see, and then the second death, which is punishment in the lake of fire. But... Those who are saved, they will be racked in their rightful place. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The whole chapter 8 of the book of Romans is the answer to the question that is given in chapter 7. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 8 is all about the fact that we are already not condemned, and thus we see that God is going to glorify us. He is for us. He's turning all things together for good. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider, Paul writes, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's really good to think that way, right? We need to renew our minds. The same thing like Second Corinthians. We're to think of the things that are unseen, the eternal things, not the things that are, that are seen, not to focus on those. And he says here, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now we're up to this point. Man is not reigning rightly over this cursed creation, right? We see this. Things are not right, but it will be. They will be, as we're going to see. Yet, we do not see all things subjected to him. Yet, yet, yet. And it's at this point we have a tremendous contrast which points out God's plan on how to stop this reign of death. We don't see man reigning. Man is in sin. Sin is reigning over man. But what do we see? Verse 9, but we do see him. This is great. Who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Uh, Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What a contrast here. What a contrast. And there are different words here actually used. Uh, the first word for see here, orao, speaks of noticing. We don't notice uh, uh, right now, we don't notice all things subjected, right? But we do see, that's the second word, which stresses actually uh, uh, beholding. We do behold Jesus. We see him. We don't notice things right, but we see him. We behold him. Tremendous. We do not yet perceive or see things subjected to him, but we do behold him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. And what is it we behold about him specifically? What is it that we see here? Notice, first of all, the, we can observe that God became a man. It says here, but we see, do see him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Indeed, the Son of God was made for a little while, 33 years, lower than angels. What humility. God became a baby and grew up. He lived the perfect life, fully, fully human, fully God. Our text says, namely Jesus. That speaks of his human name. Matthew one twenty one. you shall name him Jesus. That means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves, for he shall save his people from their sin. What humility that God would become a man. A little farther on, we won't see it today, uh, but since the children, verse 14 in our passage, share the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Since we have flesh and blood, Jesus took upon flesh and blood. Tremendous, wonderful reality. And this wonderful, amazing thing, over 2,000 years ago, God the Son did the most incredible thing. In the beginning, John 1, 1 was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that had come into being. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul shared to the Philippians uh, that they were to have the same mind. They were to have the mind of Christ. And he shares in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind or attitude, verse 5, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God, therefore also God highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. We see that name is the Lord, that Jesus possesses. It is the Lord. He is the Lord. Tremendous, wonderful truth, tremendous truth. We have this God, the Son, who was was completely before the incarnation, fully God and fully expressed it. During the incarnation, although he's fully God, he became fully man. He didn't become a new person. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. God took on human flesh. And so during the incarnation, Jesus was one person with two distinct natures, divine and human, working in perfect unison and harmony. As God, he sustained the world. As man, he was able to suffer death on our behalf. As God, he existed for all eternity. As man, he entered into the realm of time and human suffering. As God, he's able to give infinite work, value to his work. Uh, As man, he's able to represent the human race before the justice of God. Like us all, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He entered humanity born of a woman. That's the gospel. We see that in the gospel in Luke. Turn to Luke chapter two. We see the the truth of the of, of the of the birth of Christ. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Interesting word, inhabited earth. Uh, this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while there, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there were no there was no room for them in the inn and in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night and an angel of the lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened and the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold i bring you good news of great joy which shall be for all the people for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace among men, and, excuse me, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. God the Son took on human flesh. He became a man. Like all of us, he entered this. He entered humanity born of a woman. And then back to our passage, verse 9. But we do see him. We do behold him. We don't see man the way he should be. But we see him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Namely Jesus. But notice, there's something very important here. We see something about him. We see what he did for us. We see what God did, namely Jesus, because of the suffering and death, suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Right away, the author connects the incarnation with the death of Christ. 
we see Jesus who died and was glorified and is greatly honored. Greatly honored. Sometimes this is where we get hung up. We just think about the, the manger, and that's important. But we need to recognize Jesus came to die for us. He came to die for us. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Acts 2.23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He came to die, and he suffered greatly unto death. And when we come to this Christmas time, we need to realize that our Savior came. He took on human flesh to die for our sins. We'll see this here in a second. He became flesh, but he did it for a certain reason. He did it for a certain reason. And we need to recognize that it was the sufferings for the glories to come. Sufferings for the glories to come. Notice in the end of verse um, in verse 9 that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He came to die in our place. He came to die in our place. That by the grace of God, now we're not sure what it means, but it's by God's grace that he died for us, certainly true, or it's that God's grace is manifest in his death, and that is certainly true too. We know Titus chapter 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It's God's grace, his grace manifest, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, let's taste death, what does that mean? Just take a little sip of it? Well, that was a Hebrew idiom. To taste something was to fully partake of it. That he would fully partake, have the full experience. He died for our sins. He died for our sins. That he might taste death for everyone. Now, does this mean that everyone is saved? Does this mean that? Can't be. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks about those who willfully go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. We see that the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, he tasted death for everyone, but not everyone is saved. The offer is open to all. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Titus chapter 2. And this reveals the reality that what Christ did was uh, sufficient for all. But it's only efficient for those who believe. It's sufficient for all. There are tons of passages that point to this. Tons of passages. John 1, 7, he came as a witness that, the, to, that bear witness of the light that all might believe in him. And he is the light that enlightens every man. We see that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. In our passage, that he might taste death for everyone. everyone. Be careful when you get theological systems that box you in and cause you to choose erroneous views of scripture. We need to understand what God's word says. 1 John 2 2, 1 and 2, my little children, I, I am writing you these things that you may not sin. That's really important. God's word protects us from sinning, by the way, if you're willing to, to bring it in. It's a lamp and light to our path. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, First John 2, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. 
First Timothy 2, 1. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, all men. That's even the bad kings, right? In order that we may lead a peaceful and tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Very interesting. We know from 2 Peter chapter 3 that he is not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. For all to come to repentance. We know from Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, God says, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, rather that they should turn from their wicked ways and live, and live. We don't understand it. I don't understand it. The offer is available to all, and those who reject it are responsible for rejecting it. They, can, they are convicted. God would say, do not, something say, oh, they're, they're dead and they're trespassed, so they can't hear or anything. No, well, God's live word convicts them. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so the offer is open to all, but only those who believe in Jesus will be saved, and his death will only be applied to them, those who believe in Jesus Christ. So we see here that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What a gracious God. Jesus died in our place. We all deserve death for our sins and punishment. God's justice demands it. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus, uh, God, or God in his infinite mercy, sent his son to die in our place to satisfy God's righteous demands. Let me share a couple of verses. Later on in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that means satisfaction in a merciful sense, by the way, uh, for the sins of the people. First John 2, 2, and he himself is the satisfaction or propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the whole world. In this is love, First John 4, 10, not that we love God, but he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is not satisfied with your religiousness. He's not satisfied with you going to church. Joining a church does not save you. Being a Christian home does not save you. He's not satisfied with your works. He is satisfied with Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, his work is applied to you. His work and his death is applied to you. And his, his blood covers your sins and you are declared right through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He is the satisfaction that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In your place. In your place. So then... Christmas, do we see this in the context of Jesus coming? God taking on human flesh, you shall name him Jesus, that he might taste death for everyone so that God would be satisfied with that. Do we see it that way? Well, in our last remaining verses, not much time left, but let's just skim through them because it's going to make a good point that he had to be the one to blaze the trail. He had to be the one. He had to take on human flesh to do it for us. He had to do it. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that's speaking of uh, for whom are all things and through him are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, 
speaking of God, to perfect the author of the salvation, not speaking of Jesus, through sufferings. It was fitting, as we're going to see, it was the right thing. It was the right thing for him to do, to have our Savior suffer for us, for us. And he says here, for both, he says, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Uh, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I'll proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children whom thou hast given me. Now, the key to understanding this is that God took on human flesh. And therefore, we are his brethren in a sense, because he took on humanity, right? Yet he is still our God. And we see this here. It was fitting. It was fitting for God to do this. It was fitting for God in whom everything is. And from, it was fitting. It was proper or right to bring, or the word is ago in, in Greek, to lead, uh, he says here. And then we have this word author, uh, which best translation here probably would be uh, trailblazer, one who leads the way. That's actually the best, the best uh, arch, archela, archagos, probably the best translation. Then lastly, you have this word perfect, which means not to perfect. Jesus didn't need to be perfected. He was sinless. It was to complete, to bring to completion, to bring to completion through suffering, to consummate. For it was the right thing. It was fitting for him who through all things and through all things or all things in bringing or leading many sons to the glory. That's through faith in Jesus Christ, through what he did to perfect or to complete the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was the right thing for a substitute to come, for God to take on human flesh to die in your place. It is the right thing. It was fitting for God to do so. It was fitting for him to complete or to lead the author uh, through sufferings, the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was the right thing, fitting for God, in the context of leading many sons to glory, the right thing to perfect, to bring to completion, the pioneer or trailblazer of their salvation through sufferings. And in context, that's death. That's death. He died for us, to taste death for everyone. It was the right thing for Jesus to suffer and die to bring about our salvation. You could just think of it that way. It was the right thing. It is only through the successful death of Jesus Christ that we are saved. He is the only one who defeated death. He is the only one because he is God and was sinless and could not be held by death. And thus, through his death, he will bring many sons to glory. We're on our way to glory, by the way. This isn't it. All the little things failing all around us, all the sin, all our mess-ups, whatever it might be. This is not it. We're on our way to glory. He's bringing many sons to glory. So simply put, God's character demanded that Christ blaze the trail by becoming human and dying for us to bring many sons to glory, to bring many sons to glory. Now, we don't really have much time left to unpack the last two verses, so I'll just give you a brief overview. We have a wonderful explanation, verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, that means to set apart, and those who are sanctified, that means to be set apart, context of salvation, all are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You see, all from one Father refers to the fact that Jesus um, came, became, he became like us, human. He came, the Father sent him. He became human. And he's not ashamed to call us brethren. That's amazing. 
And he quotes Psalm 22, 22. I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is quite amazing. God the Son became like us, suffered and died, uh, perfecting, bringing to completion our salvation, thus having set apart many sons to glory through salvation. Christ becoming like us, human yet without sin, is not ashamed to call us brethren, we the children given to him. Wow. Christmas points to the fact that in light of our sin and fall, God did the right thing and sent his son to die for our sins. And that's what we need to remember. That's what we need to remember. So you might think, oh, it's not fair that we have a sin problem. It's not fair that I was born and I'm a sinner because of Adam. That's not my fault. Well, you're sort of right and you're sort of wrong. The reality is God made it right. He did the right thing. He did the right thing. And he sent his only son to die for you and I. So why Christmas? Because we're sinners. Never forget that. We deserve death, punishment. We are not reigning the way we were created to reign. We've fallen short of the glory of God. So why Christmas? Jesus came to die in our place, a substitute. Suffered and died and now glorified. And Jesus became, Jesus did so because it was the right thing to do. So where are you today? Do you see Christmas in light of what God has done through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful reminder of why your son came. That he came because we're sinners. And you brought about him doing the right thing, Lord God. You, you sent him to die for our sins. And I thank you that he did die for our sins and he rose from the dead. That he tasted death for everyone. Lord, I thank you that the offer is for all. I, I pray that anyone hearing who hasn't believed yet would not harden their hearts, that as they're convicted by the Spirit of God, they would call to Jesus, save me, Lord God, I'm a sinner. Save me. And Father, for those of us who have believed in your Son and who are thus saved, may we just praise you and worship you and exalt you this Christmas season and every day knowing that what you did through your son brought about our salvation. And we are now in your family. We are your daughters and sons, Lord God. We thank you so much. So we praise you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And you'll, you'll have on the back of your, song, of your outlines what chapter